welcome uh, for our discussion of uh, taking stock of Donald Trump's foreign policy after a year. Uh, we have just an hour for the uh, discussion today, so we'll get you out promptly at 3 o'clock. I've got three very distinguished colleagues uh, of mine here at Hudson on the panel, Michael Duran, Rebecca Heinrichs, Walter Russell Mead. Uh, we're going to start with uh, a few remarks from each of them, uh, and then we'll uh, have a little discussion amongst ourselves, and we'll draw you in toward the end of the hour. Let me just start by setting the stage a little bit. The Trump administration took office after a candidate made some rather startling statements about foreign policy of a kind that had not previously been characteristic of American aspirants to the presidency. He uh, diverged sharply in certain respects from what established uh, views in Washington on how things get done, and he, his tone was inconsistent with uh, what the uh, establishment in Washington had come to expect in circumstances like that. And this was, uh, on the one hand, quite uh, startling, and uh, to many people it was uh, jarring, uh, not only in the United States, but also uh, abroad. And so, obviously, Trump was running as a change agent, as a disruptor of the status quo. Uh, he had nothing especially kind to say about this foreign policy establishment in Washington, such as it was, uh, nor did he feel that he needed to defer uh, to the expertise of this establishment, or at least that was the posture on the campaign trail. When he took office a year ago, a little bit over, uh, the question was, who was Trump going to be now that he had the responsibilities actually thrust upon his shoulders? And this was uh, an open question. Many people expected uh, a very high degree of disruption into the status quo that would be a product of uh, the president's uh, new views on such matters as trade, uh, as America first, as a guiding principle, uh, his uh, rather... Uh, at times contemptuous remarks about uh, globalism and what it represents, uh, and so forth. So the first question, I think, that arises in this context is a classic question that is relevant at changes of administration. It's the question of change and continuity. You know, how much is going to be different, and how much is actually going to be the same? So I think this question uh, was especially acute when President Trump took office. And uh, it remains uh, a question that I think a lot of people regard as not finally settled. Uh, the, the disruptive element has certainly been present. The president tweets and makes no apologies about doing so. These tweets often have relevance to subjects that are matters of US foreign policy. But the connection between the tweets and the policy is sometimes a little difficult to parse or understand. So we'll need to explore that a bit. Uh, we'll also need to explore the extent to which uh, the president's doctrine of America first, if it is indeed a doctrine, has actually been implemented by his own administration. And if it has not, uh, and I think that there are many respects in which we can say that it is not, we'll have to try to understand exactly why it hasn't been. And third, and perhaps finally, uh, is the, the, the remaining, uh, I think, uh, enigma of, uh, of Trump the leader. Uh, who is Trump? What, uh, what, is, what motivates him? What gets him going in the morning? And what keeps him going? And what role does uh, this element of his presidency play uh, in US foreign policy? So as I said, I've got three uh, terrific colleagues here. Uh, and I'll uh, ask uh, Michael Duran to start us off. We're going in alphabetical order. Uh, and Michael's specialty, of course, is the Middle East. And one uh, element of uh, quick change uh, in the uh, Trump administration's uh, policy has been with regard uh, to, the, to the Middle East. Uh, it seems to me fair to say that there was a fairly significant effort to reorient American policy uh, in the Middle East, and that the divergence in policy between the Trump administration and the Obama administration is one of the, its most pronounced areas. But enough from me. Let's hear from the expert on the matter. Thanks. Thanks, Todd. Thanks to all of you for being here. Um, if we go back to the, to the campaign, 
a lot of the things that uh, Donald Trump said about the Middle East made the Middle East experts very uncomfortable. Uh, I guess all the experts are always uncomfortable with what he said. But, but his message was, um, was actually brilliant domestic politics, but it didn't make a lot of sense as policy. Um, the, the message was, I'm going to give you more with less. I'm going to give you much more than Barack Obama but with much less uh, commitment of uh, uh, wasting of uh, treasure and blood and treasure than George W. Bush. Uh, Barack Obama, he was weak, um, and he appeased our enemies. George W. Bush was not weak, but he went on these, um, these, extravagant, uh, these extravagant projects like democracy building in the Middle East that were a waste of, uh, that were a waste of time. Me, I'm a tough guy. I'm going to use our military... Um, uh, where necessary. You remember he famously said, I'm going to bomb the shit out of ISIS. So I'm going to be very tough with the military, but I'm going to use it in a very focused way. And I'm going to give you, uh, uh, I'm going to give you greatness on the cheap, was uh, sort of the, the, the message, which is, uh, I think, uh, as a domestic political message, was a brilliant message, and the, uh, or at least one that struck um, uh, at the heart of the concerns of the, a, a large percentage of the electorate, and, and um, uh, uh, was helped him win the election. Uh, but then the question was, how do you translate that into policy? Um, and here, I think if you look at, con at the continuity and change, um, there are two areas of massive change and one area of continuity. Um, first of all, I'm talking about in the, in the worldview. Let's talk about theology before we talk about policy. There are two areas where, where, where Trump and Obama differed greatly, and then one area where, um, where they were the same. Uh, the area where they were the same, let me start with that, is that they, they really have the same goal, both of them, uh, which is to, to um, pull America back from the Middle East, keep it from having to get too deeply involved in these unwinnable wars in, in, the, uh, in the region. Um, and in particular, I think, a, uh, a deep fear on both sides, both in Obama and, and Trump, of being sucked into another Iraq in Syria. So, that's, so there's a lot of continuity there in the, in the, in the outlook. Uh, the change is, first of all, how do you go about getting it? Because what Barack Obama wanted to do was create a concert system with the, that would include not just our traditional allies in Europe and our allies in the Middle East, but also the Russians and the Iranians. So we're going we're gonna to sit at the, uh, uh, in a round table. We're going to be the conveners of a, of a discussion with our partners, uh, which include the Russians and the Iranians. And we're going to convene the discussion around the round table. And we're going to come to an agreement about how to handle the worst pathologies in, in the region. Because we all have shared interests, the Russians, and, and we and the Russians and the Iranians, we all want to destroy ISIS. We, the Russians and the Iranians, we don't, we don't like Sunni jihadism in general. None of us has an interest in stability. I'm not saying that this is actually reality. I'm saying this is the worldview, um, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, from Trump's point of view, from, I think from my point of view too, the problem with that was it just gave the Russians and the Iranians a pass. And they sat at the round table with us, and they said, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. This is really the way to do things. And then they, they lapped up territory on the ground. And so they went on the march. All the while, we told ourselves that sooner or later, this is going to get better once they realize that we're really not out to get them. And, and they just pocketed all that we gave them and kept moving, and, and kept moving along. Um, the, the, so, so Trump's answer to that where he, in, in policy terms, is I have, to actually, I have to actually build up allies against the Russians and the, and the Iranians, or, or I have to rebuild the, uh, the alliances with my traditional allies, particularly Israel and Saudi Arabia, also Turkey, but Turkey's a very difficult uh, actor in, in, in this regard. Um, and so where that puts Trump if you sort of want to compare him to other presidents, is, is uh, I think the comparison is Richard Nixon after Vietnam. Nixon wanted to, the Nixon doctrine was we're going to build up local actors, allies, who are going to look after our interests so that we don't have to be there with our, with our, with our own people. So there's the kind of round table of Obama versus a rectangular table of Trump. The rectangular table is 
us and our traditional allies on one side and our rivals on the, uh, on the other side. Then the, the other area where there's a great difference between Trump and Obama is the uh, understanding of the role of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Arab-Israeli conflict in, in the region. Uh, Obama believed uh, that it was a central strategic issue that uh, he, he believed it was a central strategic issue. He believed that the greatest impediment to, to, to improvement of the conflict, to amelioration of the conflict, was Israel, our ally. Um, and he believed that if we, uh, if we got some kind of advance in the peace process, that that would have some sort of larger reverberation uh, in, the, in the region. The people who believe this, there are lots of them, maybe some of you, um, I hope not, but sometimes it happens. They slip in here to Hudson. The, uh, the they, they, people who believe are, are hard-pressed to explain how getting the Israelis and the Palestinians to come to some kind of agreement is going to make it easier for the United States to put Iraq together or uh, take care of terrorism in Afghanistan and so on. But they believe this. So Trump, uh, as you can tell, I'm a little bit skeptical. Uh, Trump does not, uh, does not believe that. And I think Trump probably, although I'm not sure about this, Probably is, would be more inclined to think that the that the that the the difficult actor in the Israeli-Palestinian arena is the uh, the Palestinians and not the uh, and not the Israelis. Um, where I think that the Trump and Obama are similar is that I think if if Trump could get a deal on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, he would love it. He would he would love to have the handshake on the White House lawn like uh, Bill Clinton did with Rabin and. Uh, and Arafat, that would suit him uh, wonderfully, and he may well try to do it, but he's not kidding himself that this is going to be some kind of great uh, stra strategic victory. Um, and I think uh, there's a lot more to be said, um, maybe just a couple lines, and then I'll, I'll uh, pass it on to my colleagues about Syria. Um, there's the, the differences I just laid out, continuity and differences, those are all on the, on the theological, theoretical uh, sort of perspective level. Then there's the problem of how you translate all of this into policy on the ground. And the problems in the Middle East, I don't need to tell any of you this, is they're, they are, they're difficult problems. Uh, and a lot of them, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Or you know, even if you do everything right, you're still going to have a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of difficulty. And so when you look at what they're doing on the ground, um, it, uh, it, it, it often doesn't look like it's that much different. Um, but I, I think it is actually quite significantly different. And, and I'll, I'll just give you um, one example. And then I realized I left something out of my earlier. So I'm going to give you one example. And I'm sorry, Todd, I'm going to double back and make one more point, and then I'll leave. The, what, what we just saw in Syria, uh, we just saw um, the United States kill uh, up and just you know, two weeks ago, um, up to uh, uh, possibly as many as 200 Russians. Um, that we would not have seen under uh, Barack Obama. Now, I don't want to overstate it, because Trump isn't out to kill Russians. He wants to reach out to Russia to a certain extent, just like Obama does. He doesn't have the roundtable idea that Obama had, but he, but he's, but he, but he doesn't. He doesn't see his job as um, driving Russia out of the Middle East. That is not his job. And the the, the military action that we took on in uh, in Syria was in response to a Russian and Iranian provocation. They put together a battalion from Deir ez-Zor. They started to move north. We have a, we have a line there for force protection purposes that we are policing. And the American military actually contacted the Russian military and said, these guys are moving north. Are they yours? And the Russian military disowned them because they're, you know, they're irregulars. They're the, the Syrian equivalent of the, little green, of the little green men in the Ukraine. And then we obliterated them. So uh, you know, it, wasn't, it, it was, in a sense, a kind of defensive action. At the same time, simultaneously, there was a similar thing going on between the, the Iranians and the, and the Israelis. The, Israeli, the Iranians and the Russians were probing us from the south, and the Iranians were probing the Israelis by, by means of a drone. And the Israelis responded with a very powerful uh, uh, attack on Iranian positions in, um, in, in Syria. Uh, and we supported that. 
um, in, the, in the sense that we, in, in that, we, that we approved of it diplomatically. The two were not, we were not though knitted up with the Israelis in a joint strategy designed to push back against the Russians and, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the Iranians. Uh, and that's where there's a little, that's where the, that's where the amb ambiguity lies in my mind when you go from the theoretical to the, to the policy in that, in that the Trump policy is to contain Iran. The, the Trump policy is to contain Russia on the theoretical le level as well. But there's this continuity between Trump and uh, between Obama and Trump of not wanting to get sucked into Syria. So yes, we want to contain the Iranians. Yes, we want to contain the Russians, but not so much that it's going to actually force us to commit troops. Uh, so you get uh, so you get a defensive posture toward the Russians and the Iranians that is much more aggressive, if, you can be, if, that, if there's such a thing to have an aggressive defense, uh, than there ever would have been under, uh, uh, under Obama, but it hasn't been turned into any kind of offensive strategy. Um, and then uh, the last point that I forgot, I forgot to mention the Iranian nuclear question. But the, uh, oh, 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 I mentioned that Trump's, Trump felt that Obama tilted toward our enemies and away from our allies. He is, Trump is returning that, and that, of course, leads to a completely different policy on the on the nuclear deal or does it and that that the we, we have a rhetorically a completely different policy we have a big decision coming up in May about whether to reimpose the sanctions on Iran which would effectively mean leaving the the the, the JCPOA uh, if if President Trump President Trump has already distinguished himself significantly from Obama on this issue um, but, he, but he has yet to, to turn that into policy where you can say 100 percent that, 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 that he's gone a totally different direction. I think he will. That's my, my, that, that, that's my best guess. But there's still, at this stage, a little bit of ambiguity there. And I'll, I'll stop. Okay, Michael. Thanks very much. Uh, Rebecca, change in continuity is, the, is my general frame on this. Uh, we have a national security strategy now that is very different in tone from previous ones. Uh, very, very little in the way of uh, affirmations of the principles of liberal international order, et cetera, much more focus on sovereignty, on American values, on national interest, et cetera. Sort out the question of continuity versus change for us on the national security and defense policy front. Sure, happy to. Um, if I may, I think one of the things that would be helpful um, as we sort of mull, mull this issue over is to, is to think through how President Trump understands himself. I think that that's key. So a, lot, a lot of us are trying to figure out, you know, what is it that he's doing, but, but how, how does the president see himself? What, what does he think he's doing? Um, if you go back to April 2016, um, candidate uh, Trump gave this great foreign policy speech in which he said, um, my foreign policy will always be, will always put the interests of the American people and American security above all else. That will be the foundation of every single decision that I make. He went on to say, as time went on, in American foreign policy, um, things began to make less and less sense. Logic was replaced with foolishness and arrogance, which led to one foreign policy disaster after another. They just kept coming. We went from mistakes in Iraq to Egypt to Libya to President Obama's line in the sand in Syria. Each of these actions have helped to throw the region into chaos and gave ISIS the space it needs to grow and prosper. Very bad. Trump said. It all began with a dangerous idea that we could make Western democracies out of countries that had no experience or interest in becoming a Western democracy. Um, that, that was the candidate, and, and, and those ideas have, you can absolutely see them reflected in the national security strategy, the national uh, defense strategy, um, and then I would argue also in the uh, nuclear posture review, and we will see it in, reflected in the forthcoming missile defense review. Um, I like to think of these uh, documents as uh, Russian nesting dolls. Um, I like that imagery. <laughs> and because they all fit together, and each report that comes out um, kind of um, gets more specific about what, what this is going to look like. And for those who keep saying, I, I always hear, oh, yes, but everything that's going well in national security and foreign policy has nothing to do with Trump. It's just, it's just the adults in the room that are running things. And I say, but it's, it's, it's been, you can see the patterns from candidate Trump reflected in these documents. Um, and so with that, I have, these, I have three principles that I think um, have been consistent in the way um, uh, these ideas um, 
have manifested themselves under uh, uh, President Trump. The first is that President Trump and his administration takes a pragmatic, uh, in my view, more evidence-based view of governments abroad, and as such are not motivated by a desire to stir up discord and strife in the hopes of promoting democracy uh, abroad. Um, that should be obvious by now, but um, at least not for its own sake. And, and just to, you know, everyone thinks of Iraq as being the, the big example for this, but really this was something that defined everything that President Bush and his administration sought to do. So he, he often would rebuke governments, even that we were um, had partnerships with and alliances with publicly about their human rights. Um, you know, whenever he would go abroad or would talk about them, he would mention um, human rights. And he, he famously said in his second inaugural address, Quote, eventually the call of freedom comes to every mind and every soul, end quote. Uh, this has, in my view, proven not to be true. Um, rather, tyranny, hate, and violence comes to enough minds and souls that we should not be so arrogant as to think that we can merely lift the weight of tyranny to allow a free people to be free and self-governing if, in fact, that's not what they um, want or, or have practiced enough for, the, for themselves. And because of this very different view, President Trump does not lose any sleep over uh, having partnerships with strongmen. Okay, so we see that you know the, the the media that's very critical of him likes to highlight that it seems that he admires strongmen. It's not that he admires strongmen; it's just that he's not interested in creating problematic relationships in countries where we are are already cooperating. You can think of El Sisi as one example. You can even see in Duterte in in the Philippines. Um, both of those are providing strong partnerships with the United States in pursuing our interests, and in the case of El-Sisi, in fighting um, Islamic radicals, um, and also the, the um, Egyptians willing to even have a um, more cordial, cooperative relationship with Israel. And in the case of the Philippines, um, I would just like to point out this is sort of an underappreciated point. I think the Philippines um, here, it increased their trade by 80% in one year in 20, 20, from 2015 to 2016 with North Korea under Barack Obama. Since President Trump has been in office and has been um, leading this pressure campaign, the Philippines have completely cut off trade with North Korea. So that has been a very cooperative um, ally. I think they're the fifth largest trading partner with North Korea, and they've, they've cut off um, trade. So um, you can see some, some real results in, in what the president is doing. Um, now, this is not, oh, one more point on that, too, just to kind of foot stomp something that Mike said, which was, this has also affected the way President Trump utilizes our military. So he doesn't think of the military um, as just sort of this tool in, again, nation building and democracy promotion, but, um, but he uses it as what the military is good for. So um, I, I always think about, you know, great way to think about the difference between the, the President Trump and President Obama. President Obama fired General Mattis when he was head of CENTCOM. President Trump hired him, made him Secretary of Defense, and then completely turned him loose in the Middle East and against ISIS. And one of the things I suspected would happen is, in fact, what happened, which is that um, our, the, the tempo has increased, and it's been a bloody, ferocious war against ISIS, and it's been greatly successful, liberating over 5 million people under ISIS's control and completely demolishing, almost completely, um, the, the, the caliphate in Iraq and, and then in Syria. And that is not to say that it's done and we don't have that problem anymore, but, but uh, General Mattis knows how to fight wars. And, um, and so President Trump recognizes that in him and has completely um, let, given him, delegated that authority to go, to go handle that problem. Um, and then um, on my, I, I did want to mention just human rights real briefly. That is not to say that, that there is a total apathy in this administration about human rights. Um, yeah. I could go a thousand different directions on this, but I would just say, if you just look at some of the progress that Saudi Arabia has made under President Trump on human rights, it's remarkable. And, 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 it, and it's happened with women you know, beginning to drive and other reforms being made. And that is without what I would call American virtue signaling towards the Saudis. And in fact, the US partnership with Saudi Arabia has grown stronger. And, um, and the United States, perhaps, we're, we're talking about the, their human rights um, problems privately. We're certainly not doing it publicly. But, but the reforms are happening. So it's a change from actually virtue signaling to, to actually just pursuing American interests with these partners and then letting their own countries make reforms at the rate at which the people are willing to make those reforms. Um, and then the president um, has been very hard on North Korea in terms of human rights. But again, it's in pursuit of American interests. It's not 
human rights for the sake of itself. It's not this altruistic view. It is, no, look how terrible the regime is, and this is why we can't trust them with nuclear missiles pointed at American cities. Um, so you can see the difference between that and then just simply um, wanting to you know, overthrow the North Korean regime and look for regime change. That's not, in fact, what's, what's happening. And then um, the last thing that I would mention is what I think is shaping up to be one of uh, President Trump's greatest legacies of all things, and that is a direct and muscular response to China and, and Russia that's increased, and, and especially Russia that's um, becoming increasingly bold. Again, to echo uh, Mike, it isn't, it isn't that we are looking for war, it's just that we are pursuing our interests and not backing down in which those interests collide with those peer competitors. And so you can see that reflected in the national security, national in the national defense strategies as well. Um, but just to put a finer point on this, one of the things, I just loved this. I thought this was so remarkable when he did this. So, because I mainly focus on nuclear deterrence, nuclear weapons and missile defense and, and, the, and strategic weapon systems. And, and so it makes me a little bit nervous, if I can admit, when the president starts tweeting about nukes. But, um, but this is what he said. Before he was inaugurated, he said, the United States must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capability until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. And that made everybody panic. Um, his critics, in their usual and moderate way, accused the president-elect of foretelling the arms race that he intended to start. Um, at one point, M MSNBC anchor asked him about it. Not only did he not back down or try to massage what he said and change it and recast it, he said, she said, oh, isn't it going to be an arms race? And he said, let it be an arms race. We will outmatch them at every pass and outlast them all. And then um, he, he kind of he, he has he has kind of dug down and, and stays and has you know doubled down on that position. He says that the U.S. arsenal has to be the top of the pack. I want to modernize and totally rehabilitate the nuclear enterprise. Um, and that I think, and then in the nuclear posture review has reflected that we're recapitalizing our nuclear weapons. They're adapting to what the, the Russians and the Chinese are doing in terms of um, brandishing nuclear weapons and, and modernizing their own forces. And then he also said that he wants to build a state-of-the-art missile defense system. And as I said, that's going to be reflected in the forthcoming missile defense review. I think. So what is the principle behind this last point? And I would say that it is. You know, I think it's a mistake to try to figure out what does the president think about Putin? What does the president think about Xi in China? I think, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. Rather, what it is is President Trump is not persuaded by the idea that parity between competitors has a stabilizing effect. That makes no sense to him, rightly so, because it doesn't. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Rather, um, both Russia and China have exploited this American notion of strategic parity as a stabilizing effect to their advantage. And so they've done it in every domain, especially recently in cyber and in space. Um, and so uh, that's why you know, we have this missile defense, state-of-the-art missile defense system that I believe is forthcoming, and then also a modernized, tailored nuclear deterrent, two things that China and Russia have both staunchly opposed, and President Trump is moving forward with without apology. Um, so as always, you know, implementation is crucial, and, and we're only one year in, but to recap the three points, having a more humble, realistic view of what can be accomplished regarding liberal democracy promotion, a willingness to pursue only alliances and agreements. I would add that to think about Paris climate, think about the, P the JCPOA Iran, um, with Iran, et cetera. Pursuing only alliances and agreements that help the United States and a, and a willingness to back out of bad ones or restructure them if needed. Um, I, you know, one of the things I said was watch NATO become stronger under Trump. Because it's not NATO in principle that he objects. It's NATO as a liability and um, as holding down the United States that he objects to. And under Trump, we've already seen um, um, a NATO that's more interested, at least in several countries, in contributing more to collective security um, and also aligning with the United States more politically, not less so with the Western European countries than with the Eastern and Central European countries. Um, and then the third point is pursuing a strategic superiority and abandoning the naive view that parity is all the United States can and ought to pursue. And so on these three points, I, I give the Trump administration high marks. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, terrific. Uh, I have uh, next to me the new uh, foreign affairs columnist for the Wall Street Journal, our colleague Walter Russell Mead. The great thing about Walter is that uh, even from his uh, lofty new perch, uh, he's still willing to play with the band which I think is terrific. Walter. Thanks. I'm actually more grateful the band is still willing to play with me. <laughs> um, well, it's uh, you know a year into the Trump administration. One thing I think we've all learned is that 
time actually does change under certain conditions. This is probably the longest year in American politics any of us can remember. And it feels more like we're in the seventh year of a presidential administration than the first. And apparently, as far as I can tell, Donald Trump has absolutely no interest in slowing down the pace. Um, he, although I did hear as of today, it had been 36 hours since he tweeted. So possibly he's taking a break, I don't know. But my guess is before many more hours. I feel a tweet going to tweet on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found a, uh, I, w I was looking at uh, the president's speech in, uh, at, to CPAC, uh, where he was basically, more than anything else, celebrating his victory over the Republican establishment, <laughs> that he had stolen the Republican Party out from under the politicians and the intellectuals who, for many years, believed that they owned the party and owned the base. Uh, Trump demonstrated that to them, and then he demonstrated to the Democratic establishment that it doesn't own the country. And I say that both wings of the American establishment remain unreconciled to this state of affairs. But if we listen to what the president said uh, at CPAC, he said, people that treat us well, we treat them well. People that treat us badly, we treat them much worse than they could ever imagine. That's the way it has to be. That's the way it has to be. Now, that is the best short summation I think you can get of the foreign policy philosophy that I've written about under the heading of Jacksonianism. Uh, the sort of idea that America um, should, you know, that America should be the best friend to its allies, should keep its word, but when people cross us, well, hello Hiroshima, hello Nagasaki, hello Dresden. All right? And that is the way he thinks. And it is, you know, for some, it's, it's such a sort of a raw statement that it's, it's inconceivable that someone could think this. And yet, if you look back through American history, it's actually been a major recurring theme of the way Americans have engaged with the world, for better or for worse. So there would be nothing unfamiliar about that quote to say the Sioux Indians or um, the Spaniards in the War of 1898 or the Mexicans in 1845. Or for that matter, the people of Georgia when Sherman came marching through. So Trump has captured a theme in American culture and politics that on the one hand is utterly alien to the way most of the people in the American political and foreign policy establishments think about the way the world works but which historically speaking has actually been one of the major constitutive elements in American power and its rise and uses around the world. Interestingly, Trump comes with this very out-of-the-box kind of thinking at a time when to a lot of voters, the world seems to, the box seems to be collapsing around them. So the stable world order that was supposed to emerge at the end of the Cold War, this era, uh, the, the end of history, the flat earth, um, uh, all of those wonderful things, the, the march toward the liberal international order based on the, the irresistible surge of democracy, liberal capitalism, all of these things that really were the conceptual foundation of American foreign policy from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the end of the Obama administration. Um, Trump simply isn't re does, doesn't believe in that, doesn't think the world works that way. I think one of the reasons he's president is because 
beginning in about 2013 or 2014, the world, the, the old way of thinking about the world, the end of history, the rise of international order, began to look like a less and less accurate description of the state of the world to millions of Americans. And so there was, a, on the one hand, a loss of faith in the establishment, and on the other hand, an impatience to see American foreign policy break out in new and different ways. And this is the, this is the movement that brought Trump into the White House, and I don't think it's a movement he is prepared at this point to abandon. I would suggest that we should, we should not discount the chances that Trump's trade diplomacy is going to figure much more significantly in the next year of the administration than it did in the first. Um, uh, for President Trump, uh, the trade, again, as, as, as the president looks at the way the world seems to be working, he said, well, you know, the establishment told us that if we built this international trading system, the World Trade Organization, they used to give us all these numbers about how much richer every household in America would be. But you take even the Amtrak Acela going up between Washington and New York, you see these emptied out factories, these empty homes, destroyed, blighted neighborhoods. That doesn't look like the paradise that you told us we would be getting with the WTO. And then on the other hand, that this commerce would create democracy, would make China a responsible stakeholder in the international system. It looks to me, says President Trump, that China has used your WTO to become a hostile rival superpower to the United States. And now for decades to come, the American people are going to have to deal with the, the rise of China, which your trade policies helped enable. And you tell me, I'm the idiot and you're the expert. That's Trump's way of engaging here. And I don't think that um, the, the description, I'm speaking personally now, not in the voice of, of the president, I don't think that description I've just given you of the way American policy was intended or worked is a fully nuanced, well-thought-out version. But it's a, it's a pretty good representation of the way American foreign policy was represented to Americans and others in the last 30 years. And so Trump's critics, uh, who often make, I think, some very, score some very solid points, because Trump is a lot better at criticizing what other people have done wrong than he is perhaps at, at organizing initiatives and so on of his own. Um, but nevertheless, his establishment critics fail to understand that Trump's trump card continues to be that when he says the imp looks at the establishment and says the emperor has no clothes, a lot of people out there looking at the foreign policy establishment see a bunch of naked emperors. And as long as this remains the case, I think Trump's out-of-the-box, unorthodox, controversial, and often, frankly, poorly thought through and unlikely to succeed approaches to foreign policy will have far more impact and far more support than the grave, serious, thoughtful foreign policy establishment expects. So I think that's where we are at the end of, of year one. Uh, and I, it makes me think that we are headed for a very eventful year two. All right. Well, thank you very much, Walter. Uh, I want to make sure that we have fully distinguished, or at least as best we can, uh, what a Trump administration and what the President, President Trump uh, have done in their first year uh, and what a Republican administration of a generic variety, not that there is exactly such a thing, uh, would have done in its first year. Um, and that, uh, Walter, I think, has given us a picture of 
latitude with regard to uh, foreign policy that the president has exploited, that he is, uh, he's, he's sort of taken, he's taken that ball, he's run with it. But I wonder if that's as true in other areas, for example, uh, in national defense, uh, and Michael also, uh, you know, would, what would President Rubio have done about Iran? Something different or much the same? Uh, I, I'll start with it. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Me? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, you know, hard to know. Hard to know um, what President Rubio would do. But, but um, I would say in, in a couple areas where I think are remarkably Trumpian, um, moving the embassy uh, in Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, in, in Israel. Um, that is something that we've seen Republican presidents punt on. Um, that is something, I remember what, 1998, I think, was the first time a law was passed that the United States would move our, our embassy to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Um, don't fact check me, but I think that's what it is. Um, You're going to be fact checked. Yes, yeah, it's going to be fact checked. It's a new reality. My footnote is, I think, that I'm not positive on that. <laughs> um, um, but, but regardless, there's been, pre, there's been subsequent resolutions passed reaffirming that, and every president since then has used his right waiver authority not to do that. President Trump says, I'm going to do it. He looks at it, and, and the, all the arguments, he goes into his office and, and his national security team, I've heard, everybody tried to convince him not to do it. No, don't, don't, don't do it. Don't, don't do it, because it's going to create instability in the Middle East. And, and Trump kind of looks at them, and he says, you're kidding, right? You know, there, there's already instability in the Middle East. I want to I move, move, move our embassy to Jerusalem, and so he did it. Um, that, to me, was just... Um, it was, it was remarkable. And, and now, and then I heard people say, but he won't actually do it. He's just saying, well, we're doing it. But now there's progress being made to actually do that. Um, the other thing, too, North Korea. North Korea, not to say, I think, pre, I think Republican administrations, I would hope, I think at this point, would no longer look do the strategic patience thing that Obama did or look to um, negotiate another treaty or another pause or, or some, you know, something to that effect or... Um, uh, more, more sanctions relief or humanitarian aid that just goes towards the nuclear missile program. Maybe not necessarily that, but the effectiveness of the pressure campaign by the Trump administration, I think, is it can only be attributed to his to the type of personality that he has. Um, President Trump made the same sort of platitudes, or President Obama made the same sort of statements about you know every option is on the table with North Korea. Because a lot of people say, oh my goodness, President Trump is threatening military force. I said Obama did too. It's just that nobody knew it, nobody cared because nobody believed him. Um, and that every pre president before him did the same thing. But with Trump, um, given his personality and the fact that he doesn't come from the, the 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 Washington sort of establishment, national security establishment, the way he talks about things tends to make people think, oh my goodness, he might actually do it. So there's some credibility behind behind some of the things he says. Um, and so I think that that the effectiveness of the pressure campaign, we've, we've had increased sanctions against North Korea when every president before him has said there's nothing left to sanction. That simply wasn't true. Um, China is now beginning to take the United States seriously, that we might actually go to war in the Korean Peninsula over this, and they better take care of the problem, or we will. Um, and, then, uh, and then on the other area, again, on the strategic parity point, I mean, even Republicans, I mean, I even, I even deal with this with my Republican colleagues in the national security establishment, get very nervous about upsetting the strategic balance with, North, with China and Russia when it hasn't existed for years. The Chinese and the Russians are pursuing qualitatively um, advanced programs that are better than what the United States has in every military domain. And um, President Trump is simply not persuaded, it seems to me, that we need to maintain parity in that regard. And so we are pursuing these capabilities um, that, that is going to give the United States a strategic advantage. Um, and that goes back to just one more, just a sort of a, a thing about his personality that people are having a hard time understanding is um, you, you hear President, or you hear um, uh, Defense Secretary Mattis talk about President Trump, and when people ask him about Trump, he, always, he very often will say, the president is willing to change his mind. And people look at that as a bug, but it's not a bug. It's a feature in Mattis's mind and seemingly to the president's mind. He's perfectly happy to be persuaded if you can persuade him. And so that's why sometimes it looks disjointed or incoherent to us across the board from on a policy standpoint. But in my view, it's actually been pretty consistent from a principled standpoint. I think um, so, some of the things that Rebecca said are, if, if, let's say Trump versus Rubio. Um, one, as Rebecca said in her initial comments, the, 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 um, 
less an influence on a values-based foreign policy and more a focus on, on the narrow U U.S. interest in the Middle East is one thing. Um, I also I could totally agree with her about the moving of the, of the embassy. And I would just, uh, to add a couple of points to that, uh, I think that the moving of the, of the embassy um, has a lot to do with what Walter was talking about, about Jacksonianism. This was as much domestic American politics as it, as it was foreign policy. And it, and it was the perfect Trumpian issue because you had all the experts saying that there's going to be disaster. And then when you try to think, it's, it's what I was referring to before about the centrality, uh, the su supposed centrality of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to everything that goes on in the, in the Middle East. You start trying to say, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to change a plaque. You know, I can change a plaque on the consulate in Jerusalem and call it an embassy. So I'm not really going to change anything on the ground. How is that going to create instability across the, the, the Middle East? And it doesn't, it doesn't actually compute, because it's really, what's really being argued is a theological difference, an identity issue, rather than anything t uh, tangible. And, and, it, and it, the, the great benefit of the, to Trump is it makes liberal heads explode. So he could just see, you know, he'll make the statement, and then boom, 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 all these heads would explode across the country. That's fantastic. He, and, and, and give give his base a sense that he just did something really, really significant. No, I don't, I don't think any other Republican would have, uh, uh, would have done that. Um, on the Iran question, I think he's more inclined to, I, I think that the, the other Republicans, all of them campaigned against the Iran deal. One of them, Je, uh, Jeb Bush, indicated clearly that he was not going to leave the deal quickly, which I took to mean not necessarily going to leave the deal, but when he was when he was campaigning, he said that. I I think that Trump was prob has probably been truer to his word than the other ones would have been, because when the other ones got in, they would have uh, and they were and they had uh, delegation after delegation of European come in, and the um, and all of the um, uh, all the the State Department and the Defense Department, all the experts telling them you can't leave the deal. They would have been more inclined to fudge it a little bit more. Now it's not clear to me yet that we're we're there with Trump because he's he's trying to figure this out uh, himself. But I, I suspect that that's an issue where where uh, where he's been significantly different. Well, oh, sorry, one last thing. Uh, the uh, sorry to keep cursing in front of you, but I am quoting the president uh, bombing the shit out of ISIS. He said he was going to do it. He did it. The Obama people are now saying he just followed Obama's policy. This is exactly what Obama was going to do, uh, and so on. And y yeah, you can believe that if you want. Walter, rarely have we seen a president who has so enjoyed threatening the nuclear destruction of an enemy. Correct? Yeah, I think he. Uh, uh, well, he. You know, he he does feel. I, you know, there, there was a moment in the uh, 1980 campaign, and Ronald Reagan talks about, I forget if it was in a debate or in a speech, and Reagan says, I had a dream last night, and I saw Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter said to me, you want my job. And Reagan said, in my dream, I thought about this. I said, no, he said, I don't want your job. I want to be president of the United States. <laughs> All right. And so... There is a sense, I think, in which uh, Trump revels in the theater of leadership. And uh, he sees that, again, the President of the United States really has two jobs in one. Um, you know, it's, the President is both Theresa May, the Prime Minister, and the Queen. And he, and, you know, bad presidents think that the way to do, to be a, a successful president is to be a really good, you know, Theresa May, and then people will respect your policy competence and your wonkishness, and then that will make you shine as the queen, as the symbol of the nation. I think the more successful presidents understand that the queen, the queen side is actually the source of the political power that if you can represent uh, in some way, then you can, uh, th then that translates into the political momentum that allows you to get other things done. Now, Trump's theatricality 
is not the, I would say, not the highest form of American presidential performance because it is fundamentally linked to polarization. And that, that does not strengthen the country. And perhaps it particularly doesn't strengthen the country right now. But uh, so, you know, he's not, he, he, he isn't the kind of um, FDR in 1941 sort of figure. He's more an FDR in 1936 sort of figure, perhaps. Where, where, as you may remember, Roosevelt said in the campaign, I welcome their hatred. Um, so whether Trump can change and become more of a unifying figure, I don't honestly know, or whether circumstances would permit it. But I do think that right now he is a tremendously effective leader for his base and that that is giving him some power that he would not otherwise have. But I think he, he to be, to sort of climb up the ranks of the presidents, uh, he will need to, to find ways without losing what he's got to try to expand that appeal. Okay, we got time for a couple of comments right in front, and then uh, you, sir, uh, we have both. Mi we have another microphone. Yeah, let's start here. Um, very short, please. I got to get out of three. Uh, looking, Michael Kurtzig, probably tired from USDA. A couple of quick questions. Do you think Trump's? You get one. I'll make it very short. Do you think Trump's? attitude, Trump's position, has emboldened Xi Jinping to change the constitution of China, that he'll become a dictator now for as long as he wants to, something that's very much in the news now. And number two, do you think the global, global uh, 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 other leaders have now come to respect him more? Because I remember they were laughing at him when he went to talk to NATO. They were there just guffawing with every one of his stupid comments. Has that changed also? When people ask two questions, I always get to pick which one of the two I'll answer. Mm -hmm. And I pick the easiest one. Xi Jinping didn't think two seconds about Donald Trump. Uh, that was about Chinese politics and his own ambition. Go ahead. Thank you very much. Farid Mirbagheri, I'm visiting uh, scholar at uh, George Washington. Uh, why is it that the president's critique constantly say there is no strategy uh, in the White House on what's happening in West Asia or what we know as the Middle East. Because what's happened actually points to very clear strategy, only that the president, it seems, doesn't want to enunciate it because it goes against the very principle of adopting strategy in foreign policy. Could you comment on that, please? Well, I don't think the president has a principled objection to uh, strategy in foreign policy, though I do think, I think, believe it was... Um, Boy, it was, a, it was a 19, I think it was Stanley Baldwin, a British prime minister, who said that, you know, conducting foreign policy in democracy, in a democracy, is a bit like trying to play a game of bridge with a group of people standing behind you, looking at the cards in your hand, and then commenting on which ones you should play or what you might do. And so, um, you know, I think preserving a kind of an air of mystery about intentions is one is one move that a that a rational policymaker might make uh, to overcome some of that disadvantage. And this this is just my quick observation on that. Um, a, a I actually, as I, I laid out these three principles that I actually see being pretty consistently implemented in, in strategy across the globe, um, and. In particular, I think it's remarkable that there are not more people reporting what we're doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I mean, it, Walter's written about this multiple times. I've written about this. Mike probably has too. I mean, but but um, it is remarkable in in multiple areas in which we're, we're we are there is a pattern in which we are pursuing our interests regardless of whether or not Russia opposes, and clearly Russia does oppose it. And I think part of the reason is is because. I don't know yet if President Trump does it on purpose or not, but he's doing it by sending out these tweets. He has the media just chasing rabbits all day, every day, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And while that is happening, the United States, you know, foreign policy cabinet or you know his national security cabinet is just pursuing his goals abroad without the same sort of attention and criticism and, and in fact, just understanding 
So I, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me it's happening long enough and consistently enough. It, it's got to be at least in part knowingly. Um, but, but I think that that's why that this is sort of an undeveloped idea among sort of commentators in national in this field of national security. Last one. Thank you. I'm Andreas Ross. I'm chasing rabbits for the German newspaper Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung. Um, if, if you enjoy seeing liberal heads explode, many of those liberal heads are exploding in allied countries uh, of the United States, but including from heads of governments who do not consider themselves part of the liberal wing. Um, are these all, I'm thinking Western Europe, I'm thinking Canada, I'm thinking Mexico, are all of these just allies that have no choice and they'll be in America's camp anyway and you're not worried about that? Or to what extent do you think that is a worry for U.S. foreign policy? I think that's a terrific question to begin the sweep uh, down the panel to get us out of here at 3 o'clock. So, Michael? Well, if you're asking uh, about the question in general or what I was talking about specifically on, on, on Jerusalem, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. But on, on Jerusalem, uh, I would just say that, um, that they're silly. Uh, for their to have their heads explode because nothing happened of any great. Uh, it, it's of it's of some significance, but in terms of affecting their interests, uh, all the all the dire predictions that were made about violence in the streets and so on, it didn't come to pass. The, nothing, n no significant change in the balance of power has taken place, um, and so on and so forth. So I would just say that I, to them, um, they should calm down because because it wasn't that it wasn't that great big of a, big of a deal. Now. I agree with them to a certain extent. There is a way, um, there is a, um, a brashness and an abrasiveness that Trump engages in that I think is sometimes um, uh, uh, self-defeating. When he attacked the mayor of London, um, uh, he, you know, he got his message out about terrorism, but he, uh, but he made it difficult for the British to bring him over uh, uh, on a trip and, 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 and so on. Um, and that kind of thing, I wish he wouldn't do it for, for, uh, for sure. But I think the whole world, uh, I think that you know, the um, leaders in Western Europe, um, they've been dealing with Vladimir Putin for a long time. Putin goes in under their noses and uh, hacks their computers and carries out all kinds of problems. They managed to deal with him, right? The kind of challenge that Donald Trump poses to them, um, I think, is, is infinitesimal compared to the other kind of threats and challenges that they, uh, that, that they have to deal with. But the press in the United States and in Europe likes to take this infinitesimal challenge and turn it into a major issue between allies, which I, I don't really think it is. Rebecca. Um. Real quick, I, I would just say that, um, like Walter said, I hope that at, at some point he's able to maybe not not be so self-defeating in some ways and can find ways to um, pursue what he's doing, pursue American interests, and do it in a way that um, is not so inflammatory. Um, but I will say that many of our Western European allies who are very upset with Trump the interests there have always been against what the United States ought to do for American interests. And President Trump simply cares more about those in Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania than he does Germany. And I know that that offends a lot of people, but he, he's unapologetic about that. And I think a lot of people just sort of got used to the American president speaking more altruistically about those abroad that are not his constituency. And, and so I, I hope with time that, again, you know, NATO in particular, it's not just a military alliance. It's supposed to be a political alliance. And so on issues of migrant policy and, you know, environmentalism and all these sorts of things that, that are, of con, you know, that we differ, um, I hope that, that our European allies can just understand the president's going to pursue American interests, and we hope um, our allies will come along with us. Walter. All right. Well, look, um, I think Rebecca made a couple of good points as, you know, um, but... I think the real problem here is that, uh, in some ways, the European Union and even to a certain degree NATO are grounded in ideas in which Donald Trump doesn't really believe. So that for Donald Trump, um, you know the uh, you know the United States he would not he would not I think necessarily agree with Maggie Thatcher that the United States is founded on an idea. He would actually say it's founded on an identity. It's a country. It's a people. American people have come from many parts of the world, but, but what makes America America isn't a set of abstract ideas that people subscribe to. It's, it's an identity. 
That would not work in the European Union very well. And in fact, in Germany, that idea is extremely problematic to speak about or think consciously about, even though, in fact, Germany is still a very nationalistic culture um, in ways that, in sort of odd, complicated ways. That is, the, if I can uh, just chime in, that, of course, is part of the problem, that a lot of the major themes that Trump is, is playing on, um, immigration, terrorism, um, economics, and so on, those actually resonate with people in Europe. They just don't resonate. With and the, the people, the, the elite in Europe is as afraid of their people as the elite in the United States is afraid of, of, of its people. Well, you know, I mean, there are a lot of different forces at work here, and, and but it, but it, it, I think it is the case that there are certain political options that make sense in an American context that would be much harder to execute in a European context, just as there are some things Europeans can do that Americans would have a really hard time doing. And for a lot of different ways, for a lot of different reasons, Trump's foreign policy and his domestic politics push very hard on some of those sore spots. And, and whether, you know, again, good diplomacy, people used to say of Talleyrand that he could tell you to go to hell in such a way that you would ask him for directions. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is clearly not a gift that President Trump <laughs> has. Uh, perhaps he will improve as time goes on. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to Michael Duran, Rebecca Heinrichs, Walter Mead, uh, Rebecca, especially for having the idea to put this panel together. Uh, thanks to all of you uh, for coming. I'm Todd Lindbergh, and uh, we'll see you next time.